0: Welcome to Coffee and Conservation, hosted by Dr. Beth Baker, Assistant Extension Professor in the Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Aquaculture at Mississippi State University. From water and soil to habitat and food production, Dr. Baker and her guests discuss the necessity and complexity of conservation in the U.S. All right,
1: (laughs) welcome back to Coffee and Conservation this morning. I am here with my good friend, colleague, um, partner in crime, office soulmate, soulmate, Dr. Joby Zarnecki. She is an assistant research professor here at Mississippi State University. Uh, One of her focus areas is precision agriculture. Um, She's technically housed in our plant and soil science department with an appointment at the Geosystems Research Institute also. And so, welcome. Good morning. Good morning. Got your coffee in hand? Yes, part of you. the deal. Thank
0: you for the coffee. Always a pleasure.
1: I know you had a long day yesterday, so um, we're just getting rolling this morning, really. <laughs> um, but yeah, welcome. Thanks for coming. I appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me. You know how much I like to talk. That's right. <laughs> and today we are talking precision agriculture, which is which is great that you're here because I couldn't talk about it as well as you. Um, So yes, uh, our listeners are going to learn all about it and how it fits in with conservation. Uh, But first, just tell us a little bit
0: about your background and how you came into your current position. So I grew up in northwestern Oklahoma, and that area is mostly wheat farming. But I decided I would rather go into psychology. Just you know it seemed like a cool thing i to have do. a psychology minor i know it's so tempting because you're like i like to talk i like hearing about people I like meeting <laughs> I interesting people that looks easy yeah. yeah but so um but you know i was also working at the co-op um you know there aren't a lot of jobs available to high school you know high school students young college age students in a small town And my town's 1800 people mm-hmm. so you pretty much work harvest and you, you know, did or didn't apply for a different job before that Oh, so, yeah, I, you know, I, I did apply at Walmart. Uh, spoiler alert, they wouldn't hire me. <laughs> uh, I was not apparently Walmart material, but um, just, you know, not because I, not because I lacked basic skills, but mostly because I, you know, as a smart, smart like college student had just finished a survey and assessment course, again, psychology major, so I sort of wrote them a, a critique of their Hiring assessment survey, which they did apparently not appreciate. You teachered them. (laughs) I teachered them. (laughs) They they did not appreciate my. uh, They probably thought I was going to be trouble, so yeah, I was not. I did not make the cut, but the good news is the local co-op did not have um, the same survey. The same survey, a much better survey, and so which consisted of the guy going, "Yeah, I know who you are. I know your parents. Yeah, you'll you'll be fine. Be here by noon." (laughs) And but so I just you know I just loved agriculture, and um, so changed my major. And at the time, it was 1998, and precision agriculture was just sort of taking off. And, um, you know, the people that taught precision agriculture at Oklahoma State, where I went to, to undergrad and a master's degree, like they were on the forefront of a lot of the technologies. Which was early. Which was early. And, um, you know, so I was really lucky. And then we had a company there in town that was also, you know, just one of the only people doing sort of a precision ag software that was um, SST Development Group. And so I was able to work there. And so I got in really early with big names, but didn't really use it a lot until, you know, I got this faculty job. So it's really exciting to see my life sort of come full circle. Um, If you're wondering if your path is ever going to go anywhere, you know, sometimes you wait. Mm -hmm. And and sometimes it's better than you could have imagined.
1: Yeah, it's fun how it unfolds. And I undoubtedly, uh, when I have people on the show or when I'm just talking to them in general – I really like to ask what people's background is because we know a lot of our colleagues, right? We, we know what they do now, but we have no idea about usually about the path they took to yeah. get there
0: uh, and they're varied. Ask me about my classical studies minor. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's right. Ask me about my classical studies minor. Well, before we get into the classical studies,
1: tell us more about precision agriculture because I am guessing folks interpret that in a few different ways. Um, or have their own idea of, of what it is. And so let's kind of set the stage there too with what we're talking about.
0: Sure. So I uh, when, you know, I like to go, I went to the textbook definition of Precision AG because like you said, a lot of people do sort of they make it what they want it to be or they understand it differently based on mm-hmm. their situation. So I went back to the original, the original, the historical archives. Um, anybody who ever took Precision AG until recently probably have your copy. Of the italicized, the precision farming guide for agriculturalists, because it was the only thing really available, and it's sort of a soft-bound, thin little paper book that John Deere published, um, and that was pretty much all we had. It looks more like a Bible. It, it's like a manifesto, but um, yeah, it was. So I went to the to get the you know the textbook definition to see like you know how are they trying to explain this to people in the '90s when it was sort of um, you know really becoming a little more well-known. And, you know, I think the simplest definition is here on page two, which is technically the first page. um, And it says that, you know, it's the concept of treating small areas of a field as separate management units. And so, I mean, that can be as simple or as complicated as you want. Mm -hmm. I think for a lot of people now, you know, that are using yield monitors and using auto steer on their tractor, those things are so commonplace that we don't really think of those as precision agriculture anymore philosophically, people would argue that people that, you know, that were hand planting and hand hoeing and, you know, that were really like hands in the dirt with their agriculture, that they were doing precision agriculture. And so you look at, you know, academics can get, you know, can sit at the bar and have a few beers and debate this for a while. Speaking of classical studies, like, you know, were the ancient people, were they doing precision ag? Because they were definitely, you know, really into the crop and, and doing these, sort of complicated practices um, that we use equipment for now. They were just doing it by hand.
1: Right. they could only manage a
0: tiny little area, so their management units were much smaller. Right. And, of course,
1: the way we farm now and just the
0: economics of it all,
1: it's not usually, well, depending on the crop, it's not usually at that small of a scale. Our commodity crops, of course, are farmed at a much larger scale.
0: I know. Well, when you see those, you know, those headers on some of those combines and mm. then especially like those huge tractors, massive, with, I are. mean, it has to fold up about 50 times just to get on the highway. <laughs> I mean, it's it's impressive, but, you know, now we consequently have a whole body of research on the effects of compaction from heavy farm equipment. Right. Right. So there's, there's
1: pros and cons um, to how the system has changed. Um yeah, we, I mean, we've definitely gotten more efficient at growing crops simultaneously. There's a whole lot of additional elements to a farming system.
0: Well, this is true. Than there used to be. Yeah, well, it's, it's not just, uh, you know, it's funny because I get a lot, of because I do a lot of technology, a lot of comments I read, like, I'll see a story and you know, something like, you know, Delta Farm Press or some of these sort of publications that are more targeted at the end users and not nerds like me. And it'll be some story about some cool new piece of technology. And I always read the comments because I'm curious, like, what is it that the reader of this, you know, article that your intended audience thinks about this? And you get these comments like, well, my granddad didn't need any of that crap. And he still made a crop. And then it's like, well, yeah, but he, you know, he may have had to work harder at it or it may have cost him more. Yeah. I mean, we just, we, you know. I know there's <laughs> – I, I, I
1: like that there's, you know, there's so many pros and cons, though, so because there's a <clears> – <throat> Practical person who loves efficiency. <laughs> like if, I'm, if I was good at one thing or had one thing that I really love, it's efficiency. Um, I can also appreciate what some of that technology can do when it's used properly.
0: Yeah, I mean, you look at the long term, just, you know, yield averages for mm-hmm. most of our major crops and they go nowhere but up. But we've just, you know, the genetics have gotten better, our understanding of you know, like the yield variability what goes into yield has gone gotten better. Our ability to control pests has gotten better. Mm-hmm. They cost more. And, you know, people also say that, like, the cost of, gr- of growing is crops has substantially <laughs> increased. Um, and that hasn't necessarily been reflected in commodity prices. Right. So
1: we know what precision agriculture is, or we've set the stage for that. Give me s- one example of how uh, a farmer or landowner could use this or maybe how you're working with a landowner to, to use this type of technology.
0: Well, so, I mean, like I said earlier, a lot of people you know, they think about yield monitors and auto steer. Like, they don't necessarily think of those as precision ag because that's just so commonplace. Like, it's mm-hmm. sort of, like that. that's, precision ag is sort of reserved for things that are trendy or new or, you know, on the cutting edge, but you know, that's a pretty old technique. But it's still one of the more popular techniques. Um, and a lot of a lot of people, they're, you know, they're grid soil sampling. You know, if you want to know why you're grid soil sampling and you don't know, I mean, it's, it's, you can determine some spatial variability in your soil, which can help you look at... Be more specific and... Look at the, you know, variably applying nutrients or, you know, planting um, different hybrids or doing different planting densities. And, you know, on top of, you know, the other problem is, Again, I guess people make precision ag what they want, but what I think they don't realize is the majority of the precision ag research really goes into nitrogen management. I mean, we're very interested in site-specific placement of fertilizers, so inherently, precision ag is also really precision conservation. I was gonna. I was hoping you were gonna make that link for me. I would like to make that link for you because I mean that's. But it, we're talking about trying to give the soil what it needs, but a byproduct of that is sort of reducing some of the environmental impacts of agriculture. Well, yeah, on the environment.
1: The soil what it needs, but with an end goal of giving the plant what it needs. You know, plant health. Being Sorry, yeah as a, as a soil
0: science major instead of a plant science major I guess I gravitate more <laughs> towards the soil.
1: Well, I mean I I do also uh, enjoy some soil, um, but just thinking from a landowner perspective, what they might yeah. see isn't so an end goal. yes
0: okay so. But at the same time, whatever your favorite child is, giving it what it needs. Let's go back
1: to nitrogen. Let's go back to nitrogen
0: <laughs> because I do also love nitrogen, um,
1: and I want to make that connection to. Um, as you have already to precision conservation. Um, But that's exactly when I think of precision agriculture, so many of the benefits of being a little more specific and intentional um, with the variability of your field um, to make sure you're putting all of the different inputs um, where they're needed Uh, and that's important Yes, from a conservation standpoint, because if you're targeting the plant health and being very specific about those inputs like nitrogen, um, we should have less environmental impact simultaneously. If you're giving the plant what it needs, you should be more efficient
0: in your inputs too. So it might, it could have some economic benefits. And it can the the trick with the economic benefits, like a lot of things in agriculture, is the trade off. So to be able to apply nitrogen or any other, you know, agriculture input in a very like in a variable rate manner, you have to understand your spatial variability, which means you're gonna need to grid soil sample mm-hmm. instead of a little just more a intensive. 20, 20 core composite. You're gonna need to have equipment that can Apply it in such a way that costs more money than, you know, your old tractor. And so there are some, you know, significant direct costs that you might experience on the onset. And then, you know, the trick is going to be offsetting them with savings. And there is a misconception that, I mean, you know, full disclosure, there is a misconception that by doing precision ag, suddenly you're going to save less mm-hmm. on fertilizers and puts. Um, and it turns out that isn't necessarily the case. Um, we, you know, over the long run, it, you know, it may all be equal, but at first it can seem kind of overwhelming um, because you know, one bad year and you might not be farming. It's going to be hard to sort of recoup some of the cost for those initial startup fees.
1: Yeah, that's a good point. Um, so when f- folks are using these technologies, and let's say because there's a lot of different technologies that go into precision agriculture. One that you use more routinely are UAVs or drones.
0: Yeah, nobody knows what you. Well, the university university wants me to (laughs) say UAVs because it sounds less like you know weddings being blown up and stuff. But you know, the reality is drones are the only thing. When I I say UAVs, people just stare. When I say drones, it's like, oh, drones, there you are. (laughs) They they usually have one. And then they sort of sheepishly say, like, well, I have one and yeah, I use it. Yeah, I know most of the farmers I work with
1: have one, too. And I, we get good pictures from them. This you can true. tell a lot from a, from a nice picture.
0: Um, of course. So we you advocate for safety right. and, and getting a license. but um, Certification. Certification is important. <laughs> but we're also realists, and we know that's not happening.
1: Yeah. So I know you were out in the field flying some yesterday. We were. Uh, tell us a little bit about how you use drones
0: within the context of precision agriculture. Well, so I actually, you know, in addition to the treasure trove of uh, ancient documents that I've hoarded over here, I've, I've got one of the items I've brought is the uh, the abstracts from a conference I attended in 2002. Our listeners might want to attend. That, well, you know. <laughs> There's always good, I mean, you never. <laughs> it's in France this year. Yeah, there you go. I'm telling you, we can all point. celebrate the 14 Juillet. Um, in Montpellier. But um, yeah, so I'm a member of the International Society of Precision Agriculture, and they have a yearly conference. Um, it flip flops between North America and Europe each year. But so this particular conference was in 2002 in your home state of Minnesota, in Minneapolis. And I, I was looking through the titles of these, um, you know, the abstracts, just to sort of see like what was it people were interested about in Precision Ag 20 years ago. And it's the same things we're interested in now. Like, a lot of these could be the same titles pulled out of last year's program, and the only difference is the technology has gotten better. So we used to do with remote sensing with satellites, then we had airplanes, and now we have drones. But the goal is still the same. We just want to look at spatial variability within the field. We want to get that overhead view that provides more information, it provides more context. Mm-hmm. So yesterday we were looking at the biomass accumulation of our cover crops and, you know, how much we've got, what's the distribution of it, are there areas of the field where it's been washed out because we've had so much rain that some of the covers have struggled, some of them have been drifted on because they're not resistant to some of these burn down chemicals <laughs> people are putting out right now. And mm-hmm. um, that, when we get to looking at production issues in our actual cash crop, having that understanding of the legacy of the field history, even as recently as the winter, is really useful. But, you know, legacy soil effects show up, you know, 200 years later in some fields. So just being able to see sort of the status of the crop um, is really useful. And so that's sort of what we're doing right now, is just starting to catalog that. So when we get to our our final cash crop yields, we have some explanatory power of what's causing that yield variability. Right. And I know some of,
1: you know, like you said those titles are relatively the same, technologies are different. We know that a lot of that um you know, lack of finding a specific thing that drives yield just because there's not, right? It's a very complex system. It is very complex. Just not only the plant health, uh, but the interaction of plant soil plant plant soil water and uh, and the weather (laughs) and the weather and just plant genetics and which I want to point out I mean our farmers know that our farmers know that this is not an easy job it's a very difficult often heartbreaking job because you can't control the weather Um, but I think our non-farming listeners may have a different perception of what agriculture is what farming on a large scale is and so I want to make that point that there's a lot of factors, like human health, a lot of factors that go into what makes someone healthy. It's not just your genetics. Um, So thinking about it from a farm system and how it might be difficult to capture that in a few studies, I mean, you're talking about, (laughs) especially if you're doing field-scale research like we are now, (laughs) where you have zero control, um, it's very hard to come to hard conclusions. And there's not, you know, in most cases, there's not a silver bullet there's a lot of factors that move into that plan, you know plant health productivity
0: so at this you know at this ispa conference uh, a couple of years ago a guy said something that kind of stuck with me he said you know you have like a hundred predictor variables and only one response variable yield mm-hmm. and he said and the other problem that you're going to face is that in your whole career you're going to get maybe at most 30 chances to get it right mm-hmm. so if you think about you know the, you know, you you get it wrong this year. You have to wait a whole another year. You try again, and so you know it's hard when we, grant we, lengths aren't that
1: long. I know <laughs> it's yeah. a whole another heartbreak of our our jobs because you do want to you want to get the science right the first time. You want to have those answers, probably like those folks did twenty years ago yeah.
0: But we seldom do. So we're you know most people going into you know most people going into agriculture are probably going to pick you know one or two things their whole career, and they're going to work tirelessly to mm-hmm. try to move the needle forward and we might not get there and so but it's it's hard to think like I you know if you think about other things if you only had 30 tries like if you imagine shooting free throws you know okay I got 30 free throws from my whole March career Mad- and this, March is, Madness, this, is, Madness, this is what they're gonna judge
1: me on <laughs> I mean we have basketball analogies because it's March Madness
0: you know you go through your 30 chances more quickly but the, the same thing I mean just imagine that as like that's sort of what we're facing you know mm-hmm. if you're Looking to get into agriculture and try to make a difference.
1: Yeah. So some challenges there. What would you say are a couple of barriers or drawbacks to any of these technologies for for a landowner?
0: I mean, the, for a landowner, I I'm going to talk first about from an you know academic and you know university extension and research point of view. The biggest challenge that we have when we try to talk to producers about it is it always comes back to the economics, and what's, you know, they're going to want to know what's their return on investment.
1: Which and, is fair.
0: Which is fair, completely fair, because agriculture is a business, um, and you would never, you know, it's like when you, you know what they say, if you have to ask, right? You know, when you look at a menu of uh, jewelry or you know, really cool Fendi bags online? You have to ask. Um, and so the, we don't have a lot of those answers. We can definitely show them what stuff costs, but we have a hard time with the other side of the equation. And so one of the challenges for us, but also producers, is just knowing if it makes economic sense to invest in these technologies because the, your university research and extension personnel can't just lay a number down and say you will save this much money or it will pay for itself in three years we can give you a good guess on some things but we just can't you know nothing is is a given because it might be a drought year and your whole crop might die and then you're not going to be able to recoup that money that year you have to push it another year so that's sort of that's sort of a struggle with it but um as far as just some of the other challenges it's hard to understand um For some people, it's hard to understand how to get the data off their machines. Effect, you know, they have to get the company that sold it to them to come help them with tech support. My mother is almost 70. She hates every technology that she owns, but she just really wants to have them. And so it's, you know, it's frustrating to her because she sees other people able to get the stuff off of very quickly. She can't do it. But she's constantly being told she needs it. Well, I'll be happy to
1: weigh in. And say that I agree on <laughs> that technology can be useful, um, but you do need you do need someone to come out and there. are a learning. There, cave- a learning. Caveats her. to some technology. I'm sure there's some companies out there that are making some great user friendly technology, but you know we've got a lot.
0: In terms and we're still going to miss sampling equipment. Yeah, I mean we're still going to miss a certain percentage of the population with this easy to use quote unquote. Um, well, technology. I
1: mean, there's still even if they give you a manual, they make it as user friendly as we can. There's still a ton of room for user error. Yeah, and often, in some cases, there can be product senescence. That's very frustrating, or built in need for maintenance. Yeah, which and is an
0: added cost in front of an
1: already expensive
0: upfront uh, cost kind of thing. This is true. But so just understanding how the technology works and being able to get the data off of it, once you have the data, I mean, it's not really useful. It's like somebody handing you, you know, a box full of numbers. Like, a black box. You know, it's like, great, I got a whole, you know, a table with 5,000 numbers in it, now what? So being able to turn that data into information mm-hmm. that people can understand, you know, summarizing all that into, uh, you know, a little meter that has a sad face or a happy face like you know trying to get it to the point where it's understandable it's so we have some struggles just sort of educating our user base on you know one how the technology works two how to get good data out of it and three how to make a decision from it i'm just going to go
1: ahead and find this a nice place to plug our land grant universities and our extension services because at the same time you can also misinterpret that information and, and we already know there's plenty of misinformation out there. There's also a lot of data out there. And we wanna make sure we're interpreting it in the best, most usable, um, also in a conservative way, right? So that it's not, uh, we're not making too many assumptions about the data.
0: Yeah, I mean, we need to understand the data for what they are. And, mm-hmm. you know, like, especially with the drones, um, you know, what we've been advocating is like, it's just another tool. And that's the you know the thing with precision technologies, especially when we talk about the return on investment, is like if you don't have high levels of variability in your soil, if you're not in you know like our delta soils tend to be very mixed because they're alluvial deposits, but if you don't have a lot of variability, you're not going to be able to take advantage of those tools. Those aren't the right tools for you.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: They may you know. Vendors may tell you, like, oh, you need this, but you need to evaluate if that's actually good for your farming operation. And so it's the same thing with drones. You know, we try to ask people, like, what are your goals? And it's the same thing with conservation, you know, Mm -hmm. like start from your goals, see if these tools are appropriate. And so I think, you know, just finding someone like from an extension standpoint, you know, having an extension person who can sit down with you and help you with your goals Mm
1: -hmm.
0: is useful because an extension person isn't trying to sell you something indeed they're not i mean maybe that's a good side gig i'm not sure how extension (laughs) pays but um, but you know like it's it's good to have that sort of unbiased feedback and assistance picking stuff and i mean we just can't do that for every farmer either so yeah
1: we're going to come back to that concept in future episodes in that thinking about it like a system your farm like a system and and agriculture not in conservation not distinctly separate either but as two parts of that same system. Yeah, I mean, like Hopefully I said, it's, I mean,
0: conservation is inherently folded into precision ag because the end result is that you are, you know, you are reducing the excess.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I love it. All
1: right. We're going to have you back on, I'm sure. But thank you for being with us today. As always, you can find more information on our website or in the show notes after the show. And we always want to acknowledge and thank our primary sponsor, the Mississippi Natural Resources Conservation Service, for their support of this podcast.
0: Thanks for joining us for Coffee and Conservation. To find out more about the topics discussed, visit the REACH website at reach.msstate.edu or the Mississippi State University Extension Service website at extension.msstate.edu dot edu.